Welcome back to the Sharpen Podcast, a podcast aimed to minimize future incidents by way of storytelling. Real people sharing real stories. I got this interview a few weeks back. I was staying in a hotel for three weeks in Louisiana while working on the safety team for a survival TV show. I was super stoked when these guys reached out to share their story. Matt and Trevor have a lot of great lessons to share from their experience, and it comes at a good time as we roll into the summer season with those classic afternoon thunderstorms in many parts of the North American West. So please enjoy. Today's episode has been sponsored by the Garmin InReach Mini Satellite Communicator. As we've discovered on the show, adventuring can be a dangerous endeavor. With the Garmin InReach Mini, there's great comfort in knowing that home is a button press away with global two-way messaging, SOS alerts, and more. The communicator's lightweight, compact design makes it an easy choice to bring along on your next expedition. Explore confidently with Garmin. Many guests have told me that better communication could have helped prevent their accidents, so I was stoked when Rocky Talkie reached out to the Sharp End to support the show and all of you. Rocky Talkies are backcountry radios designed by two climbers from Denver. I have loved these radios, and they were especially critical for me this spring when I hurt my knee splitboarding on Thompson Pass just outside of Valdez in my home state of Alaska. I was able to radio down and get help from my ski partner. These radios are extremely lightweight, durable, and more affordable than any other backcountry radio on the market. Rocky Talkie also donates $2 per radio to volunteer search and rescue teams around the country. If you need a radio, check these out and make sure to use code SHARPEND at rockytalkie.com for 10% off their radios. Your purchase will also support this show. This show is also supported by the American Alpine Club and Desert Mountain Medicine. Hi, my name is uh, Trevor McCleary. I live in Denver, Colorado. I'm a uh, product designer, and for this case, I'm actually an Eagle Scout as well. And we like to do 14ers on our weekends and go out and get some air. And this uh, this happened to be a little bit of a unique experience for us. My name is Matt Adkins. I also live in Denver, Colorado. Uh, as of fairly recently, we moved out here last year from Virginia. I work as a career firefighter in the Denver Metro. And yeah, most of my free time is spent up in the mountains, whether it's rock climbing or ice climbing or hiking or just kind of being out in nature. The cool thing about Colorado is we can climb ice from about the first week of November through the last week of April. So I've been coming off of ice mode and back into kind of the summer mountaineering season. And I think that also kind of plays into this story as well, because it shows how like quickly you have to shift gears out here. My uh, my dad was out in town and you know, usually I'd like to try and push my 14ers a little bit later in the season, but um, my uh, father just turned 70 this year and we wanted to introduce him to his first 14er and they were actually out here for this past week and getting acclimated. So, you know, we figured we'd take the opportunity to take him on an adventure, but uh, he's coming from uh, Pennsylvania, which is much lower. So we wanted to do something relatively easy, something that won't burn them out too too quickly. So, you know, a couple of days beforehand, I, I chatted with Matt a little bit uh, over some drinks, and we decided that we were going to do uh, Mount Beerstat on um, May 8th here, which is this past Saturday. We decided to uh, prepare ourselves with the equipment. Uh, we all had spikes. We all got snowshoes as well. Got my father a set as well. We decided that that should uh that should cover it as far as um the gear to plan for the snow outside of you know layers and whatnot so anyways friday rolls around uh i was out in the mountains already so i met everybody at the trailhead and where is mount beerstead yeah so that's up in uh guanella pass of uh georgetown colorado but guanella pass isn't open at this point in the season all the way through it's only open on the uh, north side right now so is that because of snow cover Yes. Yeah. Everybody was in good shape. So in our crew at this point, uh, this was myself, my girlfriend, Carrie, Matt, my dad. And with that group, uh, <laughs> we are hoping to to uh, hit the peak by around noon and then uh, make it back down around two-ish, maybe 1130 to noon. So 
when we started off, the, the trail itself was actually relatively well packed and we didn't have any issues with post holing. Everybody's emotions were high. We we're having a good time, you know, dealing with some little, little bit of technical stuff. Like I said, you know, my dad's a little bit new to the Colorado hiking scene, but he's an avid hiker. So kind of getting used to the micro spikes and the layering uh, necessary was new, uh, new to him. We made sure that he packed a lot more layers than he needed. So, so we had a couple slowdowns, but you know, we weren't, uh, we weren't trying to start out too fast or make it too, uh, too crammed of a hike. So there was no deadline. And also at this point, just a side note, usually with Colorado, uh, right around three or four in the middle of the summer is a lot more, uh, thunderstorms and May generally is kind of the beginning of it. So, Matt and I had collaborated on weather beforehand just to make sure that, you know, we won't be dealing with anything. Matt, uh, I don't know if uh, you want to talk about some of that. So Trevor kind of touched on it and Colorado is really infamous for summer pop-up thunderstorms in the high Alpine and specifically lightning storms. And actually something that I've come to learn after the fact is Mount Bierstadt, the mount that we're climbing, was actually home to a pretty infamous mass casualty incident involving lightning strikes that get involved like close to 15 hikers several years ago. So this is on my radar as far as, you know, weather goes, especially in the summer months. It's widely accepted out here that you're off the summits by noon. And I always try to check a detailed forecast. I like to look at, you know, what the projected barometric pressure is. You know, I typically go to multiple sources, NOAA being uh, one of the major sources. I admittedly, and this is kind of my first mistake that uh, I recognize for myself, was I admittedly went into it with the attitude kind of thinking that I wasn't really thinking summer thunderstorm season until after kind of that Memorial Day uh, time frame with it being the first week of May. It, it wasn't... Seems soon, yeah. Exactly, especially because we'd been out pushing out almost pushing daylight in the Alpine, you know, just weeks earlier, you know, pretty consistently because we had, uh, we were kind of more in that winter mode and and there wasn't that thunderstorm season. So we did have the discussion at the car that, Hey, you know, uh, we felt like we could get away with a later start because that was some feedback that we got from the social media sphere was, well, you guys started way too late. And we understand that by, you know, summer standards, uh, absolutely. And, so maybe we were a little complacent, but I think we also had uh, a lot of weather forecasting at our fingertips at the time. And we really thought that we had a bomber weather window. And so, yeah, we were admittedly, we kind of pumped the brakes a little bit and say, well, hey, you know, let's go into this with, uh, you know, let's make it enjoyable for Dave, Trevor's dad. Uh, let's make it enjoyable for him and try to get up there and we'll just keep our eye on the sky. And we kind of, uh, I think, approached it uh, with maybe a little more cavalier than you would in the summertime about being off the summit by noon. And it's important to note that even getting the the later start we did, we almost made that noon summit time. We were on like 1245. So again, that was another thing where it's like, wow, we're 45 minutes past noon. And and at the time we had blue skies. We're like, you know, uh, we're we're good to go. So that was kind of some of the thoughts that went into, you know, the like the go, no go decision and, and the weather. And we really thought that we had a pretty solid window. When we were on our way up, probably about halfway up, we noticed that there were some clouds starting to come together over. So there's two other 14ers uh, in like that front range zone, uh, Grays and Tories. And you can, they're really prominently viewed from Mount Bierstadt. And we could see that there were some clouds forming behind them. They're kind of moving in a northeasterly direction. So they were really moving away from us. And, you know, 2020 hindsight, watching those clouds come together should have been a tip off of oh, hey, you know, the atmosphere is, you know, destabilizing. So maybe maybe we should heed that uh, as a warning sign. Um, but they were moving completely away from us and they didn't look super threatening at the time. So we kind of said, okay, well, well, we'll keep our eye on that. And then they almost completely disappeared. So uh, yeah, uh, Trevor? Yeah, so at that point, I noticed the clouds as well. And you know, my, my own personal feelings on this, you know, like Matt said, we were starting to pay more attention to the clouds and, uh, kind of keeping an eye on it. Cause there was more clouds. Like it was, it was a pretty dark mass coming. And, you know, when you're out in Colorado, that weather can change really fast between 
Bierstadt and Gray's and Tories is approximately between 10 and 20 miles, I, I believe. So we knew we'd have some distance, but the moment I kind of saw that, uh, you know, Colorado storms blow in really fast and they're obviously very inconsistent. So I started to get a little bit nervous. And, you know, from there on out until the big storm hit, I was, Matt and I had a very open dialogue about what was uh, going to remain safe as we, we kept going up. And at this point, when we saw those, those clouds, I want to say this is about halfway up. We had probably covered about two and a half to three miles at this point. And we were just, uh, I, I want to say another two and a half miles from the top. So that kind of want to keep going was there. Well, two and a half um, miles plus elevation, right? So yeah, we probably had about, I would guess what another, maybe 2000 feet of elevation gain. Something like that. Yeah. I, I think for both of us, it, it got our attention, but it wasn't, it didn't get our attention to the point that it, it triggered any kind of decision-making and, right. and they didn't, they, they didn't quite look like they were like producing thunderstorms, but it was definitely kind of that those cotton candy clouds that had started to come together and maybe a little bit of darkening on the cloud bases on the horizon, which kind of should, yeah, should probably 2020 hindsight should have been a heads up. Uh, after that point, when we started noticing the clouds, uh, passing, we decided to push on kind of keeping our eyes over there, uh, looking out at the horizon, we were paying attention to the, uh, wind direction. And at this point, it was blowing towards us. And we're we we're heading, jeez, uh, I want to say we're heading southeast at this point, And the wind direction was kind of uh, northeast. So a lot of those clouds that we could see in the distance, we anticipated were going to blow in the same direction as the uh, uh, original cloud formation. So um, we, we began that final ascent. And as we're walking up, it's along a ridge. And off to your right, is a cornice and a sharp drop. Uh, there's still some snow on this, which is uh, normal for Bierstadt at this season, but it makes that final ascent a lot easier. However, you you can tell that you're on rock in certain places, but it it kind of makes you question a little, a little bit how close you are to actually the edge. So we start walking up and the cloud formation is off to our left at this point. And as we're going up, we have, I, I, I don't know, I want to say, you know, 200 feet from the top. We start noticing that Grays and Tories are starting to get covered and it's blowing towards us. But at this point, like I said, I was I was kind of paying attention to the wind direction. So I, I was like, you know, it'll probably blow past us. And Matt and I were chattering a little bit about it. And as we got a little bit higher up, there is a very, very distinctive change in the wind direction. Yeah, it was basically as I was coming, you two kind of summited right before me. And as I crested that summit, that's when like, that's when I noticed the wind direction. So it was kind of, yeah, we were like right, right there at the top. So we figured a couple more steps and we got to get the heck off this, this face. So we, uh, we stopped for a moment, we grabbed some drinks and took a few pictures and in a span of I want to say two to three minutes and another couple walks up behind us and they stopped. They took all of our photos and Matt and I are talking between each other and we're like, we have to get the heck off of here. And in the meantime, Carrie received a phone call from one of our friends that we had invited and we didn't even know he was going to be on the mountain. And he was actually at the beginning of the final ascent and he, he was telling us, you guys got to get out of here. This is this is getting crazy. So we packed up immediately. We were like, you know, we're, we're going, we're going. And the couple behind us hung out for, I want to say like 30, 30 more seconds. Matt, my father, Dave, Carrie, and I began the descent down. And we got, I want to say like 50 feet, not even beginning the ascent before a, a huge front hit us hard. And as I had mentioned before, those clouds were about were beginning to cover Tories, uh, Grays and Tories. So they must have blown, I want to say, almost ten miles in like the Five snap minutes. of the fingers. Yeah, yeah. Because mm -hmm. we, I mean, we got caught in the thick of it, and it it, it just came it just came on us really fast. So at that point, it was it uh, encompassed us. And uh, snow was starting to fall. We started to feel hail and visibility dropped immediately. Matt ran up to me and 
he was like, this is bad. And um, Matt, if you want to take it from here, this is this is where it really began to kick in uh, that we were uh, we were in trouble. Yeah, as Trevor was saying, so we're coming down that that ridge and an important detail that Trevor mentioned earlier was that cornice. Um, so now coming down that ridge, uh, our cornice would have been on our left. And uh, Ashley, as I'm sure you know, when you're in a whiteout, snow and sky become, they become one. So we were... We call it being a being in a ping pong ball. Ping pong ball, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very disorienting. Very disorienting. And I, I was more concerned about the party that, the separate party that was on the summit. You know, they, you could, you could just gather that they were may, uh, maybe a little less experienced. And it turns out that this was their very first 14 or they had come from a different part of the country specifically to do it. So that assessment was accurate. Uh, and I was really concerned about them maybe not having their bearings quite as much on this ridge. You know, it, it does, it, it takes a certain level, like it takes a certain time in the mountains to start to learn to, you know, pay attention to train features as you hike, as you climb, et cetera. So when this whiteout, I I was really, really concerned about someone walking off of that cornice and the wind was blowing in a direction that would blow people towards it. The wind got to the point where you, you really, you couldn't stand or move to put, you know, to put things into perspective. Like Trevor said, hail came down and we were coming down to kind of the saddle where that last, you know, few, few hundred feet of elevation gain flattens out a little bit before you have to drop down to the right side of the ridge to kind of get down to the lower mountain. At this point, we're probably hanging out right around 13.6 to 13.8. So just a few hundred feet off the summit. And the party of two that was on the summit with this, I kind of wanted them in front of me at that time. So I should have mentioned this earlier. So I decided that when we were going to do this, I was going to use it as a training hike. So I carried about 35 pounds with me. So, you know, when, when I'm trying to make weight for a training hike, I just throw every kind of everything that I pull out of my closet into my pack. So I ended up having a lot of extra like contingency layers and just kind of stuff that's in there. I had been climbing a couple of days before. So I had like my Rocky talkies in the lid of the pack, which was great because that's honestly probably up until this point, not something I would have brought on a hike like this, which was originally just supposed to be like kind of a, seven to nine mile in and out, 2,500 feet of elevation gain, a mountain that, you know, Trevor and I have been on before multiple times. So thankfully I had those in there and I, I gave him. That's really cool. I just have to say that they've been sponsoring my podcast for the last few months. Uh-huh. And I'm super glad to hear that you have a pair of Rocky Talkies. <laughs> That's super cool. Those were critical. They were, they, they were critical. And I'll definitely hit on that. So I threw him one, we set our channel and he ran down to kind of meet up with Eric and I wanted to stay behind this group that was coming down just so I could keep an eye on them at that point. And yeah, right about 13.6, 13.8 is when I heard the first crack of thunder. And that was, I knew that we were in a bad situation before that, but that was kind of the first, that was that first moment where I, I, I really, you know, it, it kind of hit me and I was like, this is, this is a really, really, really bad situation. So we got down to that saddle and our friend Eric, uh, who was the one who had called Carrie, who was already on his way up, had met up with another uh, hiking party on the mountain. So that was an additional three people I think he had with him, Trevor. And they were kind of hunkered behind a rock. And I came running up and I think that was like my my little moment of composure release where I, I, I know as a fact I came running up, I said, that's thunder, that's thunder, everyone chuck your trekking poles. So we tried to get everyone to throw their trekking poles aside, anything really metal on them. I wanted to get rid of my pack, but my, my inReach was, I had a uh, safety lanyard to my pack and I knew I had to keep that inReach on me. So um, I just yeah. kind of like tucked the pack up around me. We hunkered behind a rock while this wind was ripping and tried to get everyone in the group. We got a, a head count and that's, you know, when we started to come up with a plan and not to be cliche, but, you know, talk about being between a rock and a hard place because uh, <laughs> we, we really couldn't move with the wind, the visibility, you know, this wasn't a situation where we could have just ran down the mountain. The visibility was non-existent. And there are some, there's some very real terrain traps off the side of that mountain. If you're, if you're not on route. So we, we, 
kind of had to stay stationary, but there's also that lightning risk. And we're on this exposed ridge at, you know, well above 13,000 feet. So that's when I, I just had to start thinking like, okay, we need to come up with, we need to come up with some kind of plan. And it probably felt like an eternity. Um, that's, that's interesting. So from my, um, my perspective, when I had gotten down, I didn't hear the thunderclap. So uh, when Matt came up behind me, I was chatting with the party down below and Matt came up and he told us to get rid of all of our metal. And uh, like he said, you know, we threw all of our metal, but I didn't realize the underlying danger that, that I had missed. So at this point, you Matt heard had, the thunder. Right. Right. And I think that was just from the wind. Like, you know, yeah, I, it was so loud, you know, Mm-hmm. But anyway, so uh, Matt pulled out his inReach and began to hit the SOS on that. And that's when, you know, I realized it was very real. So total side note from that, one of the most helpful things that I have, I have learned from this is, you know, to really have a solid party leader who you can kind of like trust in. And luckily, Matt is kind of one of those people for me. And I started telling the group why he was calling them that uh, he's going to lead us out of here and that I was going to take the rear since we both had the Rocky Talkies. So while he was talking with what well, it was clear, clear, clear Creek County uh, dispatch. Yeah. So I'll, I'll elaborate on that process because I think that's something that a lot of people have in reaches, but haven't pressed an SOS button. And there are actually some, some nuances to it that you wouldn't know unless you've been through that so well sure yeah if you want to take it away and explain that but i just wanted to make it clear that i did not realize quite the danger that we were in but i did know that it was very important to to uh distinctively acknowledge who was the the leader in this uh uh, scenario because he had the most gear and the most experience in this Mm -hmm. and uh if the rest of the group started panicking and running we would have had to actually try to have rescued somebody and i i know personally myself i wouldn't have been able to live with that if somebody else got really seriously injured there and we couldn't do anything to help so yeah for sure and that was you know that's the hardest thing is when you have these group dynamics especially you know here's five strangers that we've literally never met before and trying to convey the gravity of the situation without panicking people. Uh, I, you know, what, at least one or two of the members of those groups, like were almost catatonic. So they, they must've understood to some degree. I mean, you know, you're in a, a storm on a mountain ridge and especially if you haven't spent time in the backcountry and the Alpine before that can probably be especially terrifying. Yeah, exactly. And I've been in whiteouts and I've been fine. So, uh, you know, I think maybe for some of us, we were like, kind of, uh, is this bad yet? And then that's when the thunder was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is really bad. So exactly. Yeah. I tried to get everyone into a circle and I just said, guys, we're in a very dangerous situation right now. We need to get off of this Ridge, but we're going to get a plan together before we do. And that's when I hit the SOS button on my inReach. It was the first time ever doing that. And it's important to note that there's a lot of really helpful ideas out there floating around the internet. A, a lot of stuff that I've considered doing, like you know, maybe having an, uh, a, a contact preloaded into your inReach where you know maybe you can convey urgent but not quite emergent information. And in this situation, everything with the with the sleet and snow coming in, everything just froze immediately. I mean, our sunglasses were were frozen. The inReach screen was frozen in ice. So texting on that interface was, was very difficult. So the decision to press the SOS was, I I understood full well that they were not going to send a search and rescue party out in that thunderstorm. You know, that's some feedback that I got from some other people. And I said, yeah, no, I completely understand that. I wanted, you know, the local authorities to be tracking that there is a party of 10 on the side of this mountain with several of them very unprepared for a freak winter storm in the springtime. And I was really concerned about the possibility of cold weather injuries for some of the other individuals in the group. So, you know, there was no expectation that a helicopter was going to come out of nowhere and pluck us off in the middle of a storm. Uh, That's a completely unrealistic expectation. And it's important to note that, you know, pressing the SOS preemptively probably shouldn't be the default for every situation because it does tie up an already very overtaxed uh, search and rescue system. But in that situation, that was that was kind of the, the best option because I couldn't I couldn't text on it to send anyone anything because I couldn't see the screen. 
I actually ended up, I, I did have cell phone service and I didn't realize I had cell phone service until I hit the SOS. And then two things happen when you hit the SOS. The dispatch center that the uh, that Garmin uses, they call you and they kind of confirm your situation. They're almost like an intermediate uh, dispatch. And then they forward your call to the local 911 dispatch center. So in this case, I fielded two phone calls. It was very difficult to hear with the wind. I have no idea how much they heard, but the the really comforting phone call was when I heard it was Clear Creek County 911 called and confirmed that we had 10 people on the mountain. They asked if we had any injuries. I said, no, but I'm concerned about cold weather injuries and we have lightning. And so we, we can't move, but we're going to move as soon as we can. And that was comforting because that told me that at least local authorities knew that we were there. There were 10 of us and there was the potential for a medical emergency at some point. You know, 10 of us, yeah, we could have got someone down with a, you know, a sprained ankle. But uh, what I was really more concerned about was something, someone becoming severely hypothermic in that weather and then not being able to self-extricate. And so that was the decision to press the in-reach. And, all, you know, all those things, all those, that decision probably happened over a period of seconds. It felt like, you know, an eternity. So I hit that. I told the group that I had hit it and we started looking through our packs and we were just dishing out layers. So, you know, I had my, I had a puffy in my pack. I, I had some mittens and we were just like, do you need a jacket? Here's a jacket. Do you need, uh, the one girl didn't have gloves on and, you know, mind you, like I said, everything is freezing to us so that, and I think it was like probably about 22 ish degrees with the wind chill when the sun was out. So, and I would, probably guess that there is like at least a 20 degree drop in temperature. It got very cold. And that's coming from someone who spent all winter ice climbing out in Rocky Mountain National Park. So it got cold. And yeah, and, the, and wind like that just rips, rips the heat out of your body. Yeah. Yeah. Right about that time, we caught just enough of a break in the wind to where we could stand essentially. And yeah, Trevor had that really good idea to bring up the rear, which was important because I wanted to make sure that we were able to maintain that headcount. But simultaneously, I had to be glued because we couldn't see. So I had to be glued to that in-reach screen best as possible to navigate. So I was like, look, I'm going to navigate and I need you to be able to check in and basically giving me a par, you know, a par report or, you know, a headcount every, every so often, you know, and also make sure that everyone's, you know, kind of within visibility. You know, we, we essentially staged people to where, you know, you could reach out and touch the the backpack in front of you um, to kind of keep people tight enough that we could not lose contact. So, well, how far did you have to go from where you guys were? Uh, probably, uh, Trevor, I'd say about two thousand, probably about two thousand to maybe twenty five hundred feet of vertical gain, and then probably about five miles to to get to the car. Wow, probably about yeah four point seven to five miles. Um, yeah, so we had a ways to go and. One of the, uh, so the, when I took up the rear too, um, I had the, the walkie talkie and one thing too, that, uh, Matt, you missed on that, that was really, really critical information to pass on that I think was really important, at least to me in that circumstance was, so Matt had the inReach, but why he was on the phone with, uh, Clear Creek County, he also told them what channel we were on for the Rocky talkies. Yes. Oh. So yeah. to me, that was that was a very important thing because if I got lost in that, I didn't have any way of contacting them aside from cell phone service. Which once we went down farther down the ridge, you, you lose it entirely. But I did have then a distinct method to communicate with uh, first responders if it came to that. So, anyways, Matt proceeded down the ridge. And the uh, one of the couples that we had met at the beginning of the uh, final ascent was uh, a little bit slower than the rest. They seemed uh, they seemed to be all right, but shook up uh, as it kind of as as we kept going. It kind of struck me as if they were um, on top of being scared. They were they were definitely exhausted, and we started lagging behind more. And as we were going, Matt was trying to navigate. And as I was bringing up the rear, I was trying to keep motivating them to keep to keep moving because staying in a group to me at this point was the most most crucial. I mean, all the uh, gear uh, dispersion that we had done previous was a very very important element to me. And I, I acknowledged, luckily at that point, that we cannot get lost. Like the most important thing is we cannot get 
split up as a group. So as we were going, the first squall passed and uh, we got down a little bit farther and it was blue skies and you could see out in the distance another huge front coming over Grays and Tories. We probably got, I want to say, like a quarter mile farther. Everybody tried to equip as best as possible. Visibility was already terrible because our glasses were all fogged up and were frozen the whole nine yards. Uh, We prepared and kept moving (laughs) into the next storm front. And at this point, Matt, I think I think you were mentioning something about having a frozen screen. I don't know if this played into it, but we started to get a little bit off course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt, if you want to explain that a little bit. Yeah, so, and uh, th- and this is kind of also an important caveat. For those who aren't familiar with the mountain, you know, when Trevor says we started moving into that next storm, there is no shelter. And we're even at the point now where, you know, at least on the ridge, we had some boulders to hug. There is nothing. It is just flat rock and alpine, high alpine tundra, essentially. Picture a, you know, just a big, rocky, mossy, at this point, snowy and icy, downward sloping field. So uh, we, you know, we were just kind of still in that movement mode. Uh, We had to get to safety. And then yeah, I was following the inreach and, and it was really hard to see. And what I accidentally ended up doing was following what was a contour line, not my pre-mapped uh, route. Um, and that was just because, you know, the screen was difficult to see. And um, luckily, what kind of tipped me off was I started kind of sensing, hey, I think we're getting close to kind of a, a, a cliff, a drop off. I uh, would have been on our right side. And I knew yeah. that when we were going up, you know, I, I recognize kind of where that was. And I, I guess just inadvertently made a mental note of it. And yeah, I couldn't see it. Uh, and we were kind of back in that whiteout conditions. And I, something just kind of told my brain, Hey, I feel like we're, I feel like we're getting closer to that, that, that cliff than what we were when we came up. And that's when I kind of stopped the group and scraped away at it, uh, at the screen and realized, Oh yeah, we got off of that. We got off the route a little bit, but luckily we were able to redirect. And it was actually Eric in the group who about halfway up the route, there there are like little rock cairns, uh, you know, like your little rock piles to map the route as you go up. But on the way down, we really, we, we, we were, we couldn't see him at all. But there's like about halfway up the mountain, there's these huge, like almost, you know, person-sized ones. And Eric was able to identify one of them and, and got my attention said hey there's there's a big rock here and, and you could hardly see it and even though it was probably I, I, if i had to guess less than 50 to 100 feet in front of us so we weren't off route that far but thankfully uh, he was able to identify that so we were able to really quickly redirect and get back on route instead of having to route find through what was starting to become potentially more difficult and or dangerous terrain so and slippery Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I, you know, we all have micro spikes on. I don't, I don't own micro spikes. I just own a bunch of crampons. So I had my real crampons on. So, you know, we're kind of on like, you know, rocks covered with rime ice with snow and ice and some frozen muddy moss. And you can just imagine walking uh, in crampons on that was just terrible. (laughs) Very slow going. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the other thing, too. At that point, people were beginning to lose traction, uh, like lose their micro spikes off the bottom of their feet. Um, <laughs> I, I picked up uh, uh, quite a few of them as we were walking, being the last person and just kept returning them. But the thing was, is, you know, at that point, we were worried about lightning strikes. But uh, as we got lower and lower, I began to get more concerned about somebody breaking an ankle or mm-hmm. hurting themselves on the mountain uh, because of the the lack of traction and visibility. And, you know, at this point, everybody's adrenaline was was rushing. So focus was on survival, not necessarily quite on um, uh, foot placement. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, as we were getting lower, it was it was uh, a measure of just making sure people had traction and were, were keeping close together. But we we really lucked out at this this point because it it took us 
uh, I want to say like 25, 30 more minutes then to, to actually get to the bottom to where the meadows were, uh, which is a flat section, which begins the approach up to Beerstadt. And uh, right around that point, the storm started to clear up. But um, those last like 30 minutes was kind of playing the, uh, all right, is anybody going to really seriously hurt themselves in in panic mode? Uh, Because it was becoming noticeable for some of the, uh, the other people we were with. So it was, it was this really fine line that we had to toe between moving fast enough and then moving too fast. And it was really important to be able to keep that pace. And it was a little easier when the conditions were really, really bad because the pace was dictated by the conditions. We could only move so fast because we couldn't see. Right. And then as the visibility lifted ever so slightly, um, I think people maybe got a little more comfortable and that fatigue started to really creep in. Just like Trevor said, you know, you could, you could definitely start seeing, you know, people were, people were visibly tired because yeah. with the trail closure, you know, this Mount Beerstad is a 10 mile day with, uh, with the upper uh, snow closure to the road. And to people who don't spend a third of their life in the mountains above, you know, 10, 11,000 feet, 10 miles above tree line at, you know, 14,000 feet. That's a, that's a very long day for some people um, right. without the conditions. So, and that actually um, was very apparent with the two people that are, I, I was with that were taking up the back. They were getting tired. And I, 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 I kind of have this mentality to leave nobody behind type of thing. And, you know, they were starting to lag and they were, they were telling me, go, go be with your group. We'll be okay. We'll be okay. And, they uh the the girl that was with their group she she looked like she was uh really really struggling the fella uh was it was really difficult to see his face because he had a face mask and glasses on and everything but it was very evident that they were that they were beginning to make those uh fatigue decisions and (laughs) i mean i I wasn't going to leave them behind. So I just was like, you know, let's just keep going. We'll keep on top of it. And I just kept in radio contact with them. But, you know, once you get to the end like that, people start feeling like they're in the clear. And, you know, if heaven forbid anything happened, there was nobody else out there. We we kept yeah. our eyes open for anybody else on that mountain to to try and bring them into the group because, you know, in numbers, we can at least help each other. So, but, uh, but yeah, so to... To kind of wrap it up, once we got to the meadow, it was uh, it was uh, relatively easy going. Everybody was still kind of in that the the nervous jitters, um, but yeah, once we got to the meadows, we were m- more or less home free. But it uh, I think it set in with everybody at that point that we had kind of just survived something pretty gnarly. Just the relief, right? Yeah, yeah. And then we had another two miles to go from there. <laughs> And uh, also at that point, so this is actually really important too, um, kind of going back to the inReach communication, Clear Creek County 911, huge shout out to them. They did an amazing job, you know, really staying in touch with us. And, you know, I, I had uh, one, one, uh, one person point out, well, you know, the uh, 911 dispatch center is busy. Uh, you know, you shouldn't have tied them up with them monitoring your situation. And it's like, okay, uh, I understand that that probably... Uh, took away from their ability to monitor other stuff. But uh, the fact of the matter is, is that they did. They did a really good job uh, calling back and checking in. It's important to note that Mount Beerstadt is, you know, within an hour and a half drive of Denver. So there's a good amount of infrastructure. So there is cell phone service. Uh, That does not apply to most of Colorado's 14ers. So that's not something that can be relied on. But uh, in this case, it really played to our advantage. And um, the dispatcher that was uh, uh, checking in on us asked, Hey, can you call me back when you are, you know, at the trailhead? Um, so I ended up calling her back when we got to the road and I just said, Hey, you know, we're back. We have part 10, no injuries. And you can, you know, cancel the SOS, um, which obviously stands down any teams. I'm sure, you know, with our situation, I shouldn't say I'm sure I would imagine that they sent some kind of notification to whoever the local team is, whether or not they started to spin a team up. I, I doubt it because that can sometimes be a slow moving process, but that's another important thing is like, if you do get yourself out of that situation and you know that you're good, and that's a, that's a really important stipulation there. And you know that you're good canceling that SOS 
can stand that team down and then, you know, make them available for the next emergency. So that's an important mm-hmm. consideration as well. Yeah, but yeah, definitely. Uh, at the end of the day, when in doubt, you know, I for me as a professional uh, in fire and emergency services, every single day of the week, I would rather show up and have someone be like, hey, we got this under control. We're good. Then uh, read a headline after the fact that uh, someone canceled an emergency call and then gotten, you know, we're, we're still in trouble. Right. So right. Uh, I obviously don't want to speak for every responder. And I, I realize that there's nuances to mountain rescue. It's, they're super uh, overtaxed, especially out here in the summertime. They do a lot of work weekly, if not daily. But yeah, at the end of the day, safety is paramount. So if you're ever, you know, if you're ever unsure, leave that line of communication open. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So as you're, is your dad, Trevor, ever going to go on a 14er with you again? <laughs> All right. So that's actually a funny thing. <laughs> My dad is a, uh, he's a really tough guy. Actually, our, our entire group was a really, really tough group. And <laughs> my dad uh, was smiling by the end of it. I have photo evidence and has said and already committed to another 14er this summer. Um, okay. However, wow. that being said, <laughs> There is, uh, he and I and Matt Carey and I all kind of went through some of the the lessons we learned from this one. So we're bringing a lot more knowledge to the table on it. But yeah, he's a he's a embrace the suck kind of guy, you know. He really uh, he really hunkered down and held in there and is excited to do it again, which I am very happy for because you know my mother wasn't super thrilled hearing about all of it. So what were the lessons learned? I. I've learned uh, uh, a number of different things from this experience. Uh, To begin with, I think uh, communication devices are one of the most key things that uh, personally I want to invest in uh, for for future adventures, but I would totally recommend them. In a lot of these very remote areas, you know, having an in-reach to satellite communicate with people outside of your group is incredibly important. But kind of like we said, with the whiteout, you can't see people, so you can't keep track of people. So also having short-range communication like the Rocky Talkies was also important. And and kind of tying into that as well, uh, I mentioned it before, but when Matt gave Clear Creek Canyon um, uh, services uh, our uh, channel, that allowed me to be in communication with anybody, heaven forbid, I need rescuing or my group that I was behind needed rescuing. So so yeah, I guess to begin with, you know, investing in that communication, knowing the seasonal elements, this is a big thing that I didn't really mention in this, but I was always under the anticipation, uh, stupidly so, that, you know, lightning would strike and if I were to lay down, it would be less likely to hit me. And, you know, after learning more about it, I know that now, you, you know, you want to sit on a backpack and keep your toes on the ground and you want to avoid all of that direct line because it's actually hitting the top of uh, hitting the top of the mountain and distributing to you. That's the most dangerous. So it's stuff like that, having extra layers and mittens, um, because, you know, if your hands get soaked in this uh, instance, that's where the uh, uh, cold weather injuries come in. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Another thing. Benchmarking weather was really important. So like Matt had said, you know, we did a lot of uh, upfront research uh, to to understand whether or not the conditions would be safe because, you know, nobody wants to have a bad time. My dad most certainly does not. However, once we got onto the mountain, the speed at which it covered, uh, the the cloud coverage uh, moved in on us, was outstanding. I think looking back on it now, being able to watch how fast the clouds moved in. If I were to go out and do something like that again, I'd probably want to start setting benchmarks where I'd have turn back points, specifically because we got really lucky and we dodged the first one, but the second one hit us out of nowhere. And I, you know, that was a mistake on my part by not saying we should, we should turn back earlier because we had, we had time to do that. Uh, another one, uh, knowing the area. So, uh, Mount Bierstadt, I have looked at the maps uh, on a lot because I'm a backcountry skier. I like to, I like to uh, educate myself in terrain. And 
the, that cliff face that Matt was referring to uh, was a really, really important aspect of it. But, uh, you know, a lot of those other folks that were with us didn't know about that. You know, if it was a whiteout and we got back down to the road and it was still in that whiteout, if they went south on Guanella Pass, uh, which was closed, they could have gotten miles away from anybody who could help them faster. So being very aware of your surroundings and also having that map to identify in your brain where you are is really critical to that. And I thought that was probably one of the more important things for me that, that I personally do. But I feel like, you know, I, I've done 14ers before. I haven't really looked at the map as much. And that's, you know, that in the past has probably been not the smartest of, uh, of moves, but, uh, I think, I think that's, that's most of my things that I learned from it, but I, it was a huge learning experience. We dodged a bullet because it took one person getting hit by lightning, one person rolling or breaking an ankle, you know, one person having serious hypothermic conditions to this being a mountain rescue and in an overnight Exactly. And overnight and, you know, the difference between those folks helping out or the, the EMS uh, helping out a group of 10 people or a group of nine people in a body, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. those are great learnings, <laughs> Trevor. Thanks for sharing. Matt, do you have any uh, additional learnings that you took you took away from the from the uh, yes. from this experience? Yes, absolutely. So um, one big one that stood out, you know, Trevor, Trevor talked about how we checked the weather and something that I've learned since was uh, not just look at like the numeric forecast, but actually read what the weather discussions are. Had I done that, I would have seen that they were talking about potential storms in a like uh, kind of west of us uh, and northwest of us. So in a different, a different part of the mountains, but you know, I, I wouldn't have thought to look at the forecast for there, but had I kind of, dug a little deeper and actually read what like the actual outline discussions were, that would have completely changed my initial decision-making process because I would have known, even though they're not calling for any precipitation in the area that we are, you know, in adjacent regions, uh, it is a possibility. So we need to be watching out for that. So that was a big one. And that's something I'm going to absolutely uh, overhaul for my future decision-making process. And then Trevor hit so many, really the other really, really big one. And I think this one's tremendously important is we, we've all heard the saying and it's cliche, but it's true. And that's complacency kills. So I went into the day with the attitude of, Oh, it's just Mount Bierstadt. This is an easy 14 er It's a walk up. We're not talking Liberty Ridge on Rainier, right? This is a walk up. I'm going to carry some weight and it'll be a fun spring day. And you know, well, I'll high five and go down and drink a beer. There is no such thing as an easy 14er because it is just uh, 14ers, you know, or not even just 14ers, but a lot of these high alpine peaks, they just exist in environments that are inherently inhospitable. And it's easy to get lured into a false sense of security by sun and blue skies. And as we learned and hopefully relayed to listeners, those conditions can change so incredibly rapidly <laughs> and then all of a sudden you are in a situation that is at the very best challenging and at the very worst deadly um you know going into hiking season and whether you're on you know the the at up and down the east coast or wherever you are in the country you don't necessarily i'm not saying bring everything but the kitchen sink but i would say i would say uh plan for an unpredicted storm and plan for an unpredicted overnight um, because those were one was a reality and one was almost a reality for us. So um, that's that's probably the biggest thing that I can pass pass on about this. I would 100 percent agree with that, too. I think that's one of the things that I have uh, dealt with personally living out in Colorado and doing a handful of 14ers is you you come at it with a pretty cavalier attitude. You know, it's just Mount Bierstadt, but it's not. This is, you know, this is a 14,000. Uh, foot summit in Colorado, and it's in a very inhospitable for human beings environment. You know, going into it, there is a lot of things uh, that you can probably expect that will happen on that summit throughout the year. And when you're in a season like May, you know, 
there's a number of things that can happen and having some sort of understanding of it and uh, respect for it is extremely critical. Thanks so much to Matt and Trevor for being on the show. Thank you to Garmin, Rocky Talkie, Desert Mountain Medicine, and the American Alpine Club. Introducing Membership 2.0 from the American Alpine Club. Climbing is inherently risky, but with the enhanced rescue benefits of Membership 2.0, you can tie in a little easier knowing the American Alpine Club is on belay. Say you're climbing and the situation goes south. The newly enhanced rescue and medical expense coverage of Membership 2.0 will get you back to the trailhead, to the nearest hospital, and then pay your insurance deductible or direct medical expenses once you're there. But what if you are unable to phone in the accident yourself, and it's not the AAC who organizes the rescue? They've also created a reimbursement request process to ensure you're not left holding the bill. Learn more at AmericanAlpineClub.org. Desert Mountain Medicine, innovative wilderness medicine training since 1998. DMM offers all women's courses through the Women's Wild Med Program. Wilderness medicine courses for women, taught by women. DMM welcomes all women and girls, transgender and cisgender, as well as non-binary people who identify with the women's community to join the hybrid woofer in July in beautiful Leadville, Colorado. For a 10% discount on this course, use code SHARPWOMEN. Visit DesertMountainMedicine.com today. Are you ready? So I'm currently on the road right now, traveling on contract work, doing safety for a survival TV show. I spent three weeks in the Louisiana Bayou, had a week off. I am currently in New Mexico for three weeks, and then I have another week off. Then off to Alaska for three weeks, and then to Iceland. I'm on the move, friends, and because of that, I needed a little help editing this episode because I couldn't find the time working 14 hours a day on the job. So thank you so much to Pod Border for doing the edits on this episode. Do you love the Sharp End Podcast? Do you want to show your love? Follow the Sharp End Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Leave a review on iTunes or become a Patreon subscriber. And as always, remember, play hard and be smart. <laughs>